This is Guns and Butter. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley gave far more to Obama than they ever did to McCain. George Soros, at a certain point, anointed uh, Obama, right? David Rockefeller is in his corner. Jay Rockefeller, in other words, John D. Rockefeller, the, the fourth or fifth or whatever he is, the senator from, uh, from West Virginia, they're all supporting Obama. The Kennedy clan, right, decrepit and, and, uh, and uh, decadent as they are, they came out for Obama. So Obama is the candidate of the entire oligarchy, Liberal Republicans, even some neocons, right, again, because they want to attach themselves. So the Obama project is to say, well, we can't have our oligarchy split uh, the way it has been under Bush. Uh, We've got to have a sort of pan-oligarchy. We've got to unite the oligarchy against against the people in order to have the Anglo-American banking system and the dollar and the rest of this system of, of world domination survive. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's War Administration. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we try to decipher Vice President Joe Biden's enigmatic Seattle fundraising campaign speech, as well as the geopolitical strategic direction of the new administration. We take a close look at Barack Obama's cabinet appointments, with special attention to those appointments related to war and peace, defense chief, head of the Joint Chiefs, national security advisor, and ambassador to the United Nations. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you so much. Webster, I'd like to begin with a long quote from a much longer speech that uh, Vice President Joe Biden made during the campaign, and then uh, get some commentary from you on this. This speech I referred to was given on October 21st, 2008. Joe Biden, candidate for vice president, gave a speech at a Seattle fundraiser. Quote, the next four years are going to determine what it looks like 25 years from now because we either get it right internationally or we're in trouble, he said, citing the Korean Peninsula and Pakistan as potential hot spots. He then talked about the Afghan-Pakistan border. We're going to find ourselves in real trouble when we get elected. This is going to be really hard. This is going to be really, really, really hard. We're going to have the largest systemic deficit in modern, not modern, in the history of the world, literally, literally. And this is the point I want to make. Mark my words. Mark my words. It will not be six months before the world tests Barack Obama. The world is looking. Remember I said it standing here. If you don't remember anything else I said, watch. We're going to have an international crisis, a generated crisis, to test the mettle of this guy. And he's going to have to make some really tough, 
I don't know what the decision's going to be, but I promise you it will occur, and he's going to need your help. And the kind of help he's going to need is he's going to need you not financially to help him. We're going to need you to use your influence, your influence within the community to stand with him, because it's not going to be apparent initially. It's not going to be apparent that we're right. Quote, only thing I'm asking you is, you know, gird your loins. This is not going to be an easy ride. This president, the next president, is going to be left with the most significant tasks. It's like cleaning the Augean stables, man. This is more than just a capital crisis. This is more than just markets. This is a systemic problem we have with this economy. Biden then touted Obama's team of economic advisors as, quote, the finest economic team that's been put together in the history of this country. Quote, I promise you, you are all going to be sitting here a year from now going, oh, my God, why are they there in the polls? Why is the polling so down? Why is this thing so tough? We're going to have to make some incredibly tough decisions in the next two years. So I'm asking you now, I'm asking you now, be prepared to stick with us. First of all, who is Joe Biden's audience and what is he talking about? I think the... uh the conversation that you just summarized is probably the most significant moment of the entire 2007-2008 campaign cycle. And it's due to the fact that Biden is an inveterate motor mouth in the sense that he has a mind like a rag bag. And when he opens his yap, he reaches in and begins pulling out the briefing that he's just gotten. Uh, I imagine this, uh, it's not really a fundraiser. In other words, it's not a formal meeting where he's speaking from a podium to a group of people. It's it's a, a relatively informal meeting where he's essentially talking to fat cats, financiers, wealthy elitists. I imagine Bill Gates might have been there, Belinda Gates, this character Balmer who runs Microsoft, uh, people of this level, uh, the super rich. Uh, and he's giving them a briefing based on what he's been told about the course of the administration. Uh, it, of course, underlines again that the presidency and the vice presidency are puppet posts. Uh, people are put in there, essentially are political salesmen who are given marching orders of a certain kind anyway in general by their by their owners, by their handlers, by Wall Street uh, financiers, by senior veteran government servants, sort of Eminos, Gris types. But Biden is there, I, I believe it's actually Sunday morning, October 19th, and then it came out a few days later. And he's telling them what the Obama administration is going to be like. And I would like maybe just to translate that sort of ragbag uh, Biden speak into a more intelligible idiom, which is he basically outlines a perspective of six months and, and of 12 months. And in the first six months, he says, there's going to be a large international crisis, a confrontation of some sort, which is generated, in other words, orchestrated, fake, phony, uh, ginned up. And he also indicates that the righteousness of the U.S. position will not be immediately evident. Now, what could this mean? Given the events of the recent past, one of the things we'd have to say is that with uh, Obama in the White House, the door to a recrudescence of false flag operations is now wide open. Uh, The uh, ruling elite, through its various uh, scriveners and scribblers, had been complaining 
for a while that they no longer had the option of false flag terror operations to direct the hatred or energies of the U.S. population against the foreign targets that they wanted to use. In particular, Andrew Sullivan of the Atlantic Monthly, which is a pretty, I guess that's the closest thing to an elite magazine that, that you have these days, complained in December of 2007 that false flag operations were now impossible because Bush was so hated and so discredited that if he tried to pin some terrorist atrocity on some foreign group or country, people would say, first of all, you're incompetent, it's your fault, and secondly, a significant minority would say, you did this yourself to uh, to try to dupe us and to try to manipulate us. So said uh, Andrew Sullivan, this is terrible. We need to have a president that can be believed. And now we've got uh, Obama moving towards the White House. This reestablishes, at least to some degree, and at least in the minds of these people in the U.S. British elite, it reestablishes the credibility of a U.S. Uh, president who can say, if a bomb goes off, country X did it, or this ethnic group, or this religious group, or this secret uh, organization is responsible. So I think one of the things that uh, Biden may be talking about is that in the first six months, there's going to be the possibility of a false flag operation. There's also the question of the righteousness of the U.S. position not being immediately evident. And that could mean something like a bombing campaign against Pakistan, uh, an invasion of Sudan. Uh, certainly Biden campaigned shamelessly. He tried to whip up a hysteria in favor of a humanitarian attack on Sudan. Very interesting. An attack, international aggression, imperialist aggression, no longer predicated on war on terror, bin Laden, al-Qaeda, but on the idea of bringing benefits, uh, that the Sudanese situation is terrible, Darfur, and so forth, and therefore it's time to bomb Sudan. That That's a speech that uh, that Biden has given repeatedly. And, of course, the hypocrisy of this is overwhelming because the real goal of such an operation is to cut off the 7 or 8% of Chinese oil imports that come from Sudan. And you can be sure that when the puppet government replaces uh, the regime of General Bashir in Khartoum, uh, the Anglo-Americans will say, no more oil for China, we're taking that for our own uh, purposes. So that's that's one of the other things. I kind of think that, that Pakistan may be the uh, the central point. I would like to say for everybody's uh, edification now, there was no attack on Iran, at least as far as I can see. Uh, and people spent a lot of people spent the whole of 2008 worrying about an attack on Iran when it seemed to me that after the Iraq study group, after the national intelligence estimate and so forth, it was clear there would not be an attack on Iran. Rather, what was going on every day was the bombing of Pakistan, and that was what Obama had demanded. Obama was the leading voice for a reckless and irresponsible unilateral bombing campaign in northern Pakistan, which is now killing uh, 100 people a week, 200 people a week. Uh, they're bombing wedding parties, villages, and so forth in northwest uh, Pakistan, and uh, that's Obama who demanded it. So that's in the first six months. Um, You've also got a crisis now involving Ukraine, right? the cutting off of the Russian gas into Western Europe. This is, these are examples of playing one country against another. In other words, if you want to cause problems for Russia, you don't have to do that all yourself. You can do that with the help of Ukraine, uh, which, is, which is your puppet state. So I think 
That's what Biden is saying in his in the first part of his uh, raving uh, performance there in Seattle on October 19th, is that there's going to be a return to international confrontation. Um, and secondly, the other thing is the 12-month perspective. You see that he's saying in one year, the Obama regime will be widely hated because of its economic policy. And I think that's, that's uh, very, very likely to be the case. I think the, the Obama regime is likely to be a, a catastrophic, abortive, one-term experience at most, maybe even less, uh, doing tremendous permanent damage to the U.S. economic and political system, but basically a group of people who are expendable in the way that Carter was. In other words, Car- I think Carter is a good model for the intent. The only thing is you've got to multiply everything by a factor of about of about 10. And I think the idea here is uh, austerity. Uh, this This was never a secret. So Indeed, if you add all this together, the international confrontation and the domestic austerity, uh, you can uh, you can see that it is a it's a it's a presidential administration that has been, uh, in my view, uh, concocted. In other words, assembled by Wall Street. Uh, it, it's the the highest degree of Wall Street influence in any presidential administration that I have ever seen. Uh, Every one of the main posts, and we'll go through them, is, is occupied by somebody who, in one way or another, is linked to finance, banking, Wall Street, insurance, hedge funds, uh, people for whom the very notion of economics and wealth is axiomatically speculative values, bloated, cancerous, fictitious, speculative uh, profit seems to be the, the order of the day. I think the, the, the heart of the matter is Obama is, is certainly going to increase taxes or he's going he's to increase the rate of primitive accumulation against the U.S. population, to be sure. But he's not going to do that in order to transfer wealth to poor people. No, indeed. He's going to transfer that wealth to Wall Street. In other words, uh, Obama was the leading edge of the $700 billion that was shoveled into the maw of Wall Street back in September, October of 2008. Uh, he was the, the, the personal organizer who made calls to the Congressional Black Caucus and told them that they had to vote in favor of what is now called the TARP, the Troubled Assets uh, Relief Program, right, the $700 billion Wall Street bailout. Uh, and he organized the majority that got that through. Uh, well, where is that money going to come from? That money is going to come from, again, the looting and pillaging and sacking of the American people, the American standard of living, and uh, that is going to be a, a horrendous process. I mean, that was that's what was done under Carter and Volcker, and now we've got Volcker uh, back on the scene. So I think this is this is what 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 Biden is talking about. It's a combination of a more aggressive foreign policy aiming at confrontation. I guess the underlying thesis in the foreign policy is that the U.S.-British world empire is now in, uh, in a deadly crisis. In other words, we're approaching the death rattle of the arrangements that have dominated the world after 1945. In particular, the hegemony of the dollar in the world is now uh, doomed. It's on life support. It, it cannot last longer than a few more years. 
I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's War Administration. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Especially when you look at this from the outside, the whole world is now convinced that the U.S. is in a collapse phase because, of course, the, the economic news is simply catastrophic. In other words, we're going into a world economic and financial depression of incalculable, unfathomable severity, worse than the 1930s, I think, from every conceivable point of view. And um, one, of the, one of the things that's waiting for us in the you know, sort of medium term ahead is some cataclysmic event regarding the U.S. dollar. Uh, we've got the collapse of the banking system. The insurance companies are going down. What's left is this dollar-based world system. And I think uh, one of the, I think probably the most likely variation where we are right now is dollar hyperinflation that would then lead to an abandonment of the dollar by, by many, many other powers in the world, uh, forcing the United States to go back to a situation where you'd have to either pay in gold or sell something on the world market to earn the foreign exchange to pay for your own imports. And that would be a big, shocking change. The living standard here would, would plummet, uh, would be you know, cut uh, unbelievably. So Obama's being brought in to administer all of that and to take the fall uh, politically uh, for it. So I think ultimately all of the, that whole complex, which I've gone on about now very long, is that's what's behind what Biden has told us. And, and he told us. Again, he, he spit it all out. He's, he's, he can't control himself. He says these things. He hears briefings and he, uh, he talks about these things. So I think that, again, we're headed into a, it, it, it's a moment of great pathos because, um, there's a whole generation of people, the, the so-called millennials, right? The people b- born since about 1981, 1982, between 81 and 9/11, say. So 20 years of of, uh, of the millennial generation. Their first experience in in politics is that they have been duped. They have been sold an unbelievable bill of goods, uh, as will become obvious within six to 12 months. Well, right, because it's a lot of those people who voted for Obama, right? Yeah, Understand. a lot of them did. A couple of clarifications. Now, when you talk about uh, pitting countries against each other, I mean, hasn't that been going on all along? Uh, Somalia and Ethiopia were pitted against each other under Bush, certainly. I would say that, again, bearing in mind that Bush and Cheney were puppets, of course, they're puppets of George Shultz and... And, uh, and that group who chose them, right, and chose the Vulcans and, and so forth, uh, they really lost power during the course of 2006, late 2006. You might say the, the, the fall of Rumsfeld and then the, uh, the coming of the Iraq study group and then a whole series of other things that happened during 2007, in particular then at the end of the year, that national intelligence estimate saying there is no Iranian nuclear program. All of that showed that a change of the guard had happened inside the establishment and the policies had changed. And you even have, you have leading neocons, people like Richard Pearl and Bolton and all the rest of them screaming that they didn't like the deal with North Korea last year. They said, this is the, this is the absolute you know, demise and death of the Bush-Cheney foreign policy. It's all over. 
And, of course, it was all over before that, right? You can think, you know, the fall of Wolfowitz, the fall of Scooter Libby, the conviction of Lord Conrad Black, very important, right? Lord Conrad Black, who was somebody who had financed uh, the American Enterprise Institute, so Ledeen and Lynn Cheney, the vice president's wife, was on that payroll. He went to jail. He's actually doing jail time. It's, it's remarkable. So the, the neocons proved to be expendable, and they proved to be dumpable during 2006-2007. And indeed, Biden told the Israelis in the past, what, four or five months, Biden went to Israel and told the Israelis, Iran will acquire nuclear weapons, and you are going to do absolutely nothing about it. This is, this is leaked uh, by Israeli defense sources, comes out in Haaretz. Biden, of course, denies it. But I believe this is, this is quite, uh, quite likely because, again, the, the, you know, if you look at Brzezinski, he has, a, he has a track record, and Gates, too, of course. Gates and Brzezinski have this record of delivering high-tech weapons to Iran. It's called Iran-Contra. They started this. They, that, that's right. That's right. Gates was a big part of that, absolutely. right? Absolutely. He was... Gates was so prominent that the Soviet government in 1993 sent a message to Lee Hamilton saying, uh, if you're going to have an October surprise and Iran-Contra investigation, you should investigate Robert Gates because he's the key guy. Uh, and, of course, he was. So uh, Biden told the Israelis, there's going to be a nuclear Iran, and you're going to do nothing. You know, we've got a flow of news stories now. The most recent one by this guy Sanger of the, uh, I guess, the New York Times, saying that, again, the Israelis asked to be able to attack Iran and get the U.S. involved with Iran at the end of 07, beginning of 08. And, that, you know, there are all, all sorts of reports like this. And the answer is always no, 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 because the U.S. and the British have a more ambitious plan for Iran. So the the idea is now... Everything that can be gotten out of the war on terror and the right-wing cover has been exhausted. Now the idea is to give imperialism a facelift. Uh, plastic surgery for U.S.-British imperialism. Put Obama's face on there and say, we're not those shriveled mummies, those desiccated mummies of imperialism that you saw with the neocons. We're now fresh, new, young, and we can get 200,000 German lemmings at the Brandenburg Gate. And we can tell them that it's time to attack Afghanistan, and a lot of them uh, seem to uh, to sit still for it. So I think that's the essence of Obama. Uh, another clarification in terms of using countries against each other, I didn't quite understand uh, Ukraine and Russia in that context. Uh, now, the natural gas from Russia goes through Ukraine, and there's a big problem right. there. They're not making the payments. How is Ukraine being manipulated? Well, you, in Ukraine came Yushchenko. Uh, Yushchenko and Timoshenko, she certainly would, would qualify, right? The gas princess, uh, this charming lady with the, with the braided blonde hair, right? the, the, other, the other one there in Ukraine. And that is, of course, a NATO, IMF, U.S., British puppet state. And what's the point of Ukraine? Well, the, 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 the idea of Ukraine is that's 50 million people that you can use to cause trouble for Russia. And the idea is, of course, Ukraine by now really is bankrupt, but uh, there are these Russian gas pipelines that go from Siberia to Europe. So if you're in Holland or Germany or Hungary, 
when you turn on the stove, that's natural gas. That a lot of it's coming from from Russia. Actually, right after the uh, Georgia attack on Russia, the next step would be you could see it coming a million miles away. Would be that that Brzezinski and company, since these you know they, they work very closely with Yushchenko and this gang in Ukraine, right? These kleptocrats, that they would say to them, "All right, we're going to start up a crisis." Uh, targeted for the middle of the winter, for January, right after Christmas or thereabouts, and you're going to cut off the uh, the gas and you know find ways to do it. Well, don't pay, force the Russians to cut off the part that's supposed to go to you, uh, and then you steal the part that's supposed to go on to Western Europe. And with that, uh, you can really hurt the Russians uh, financially. And you know now that the oil price has collapsed, it is a it's a big problem that the Russians are not getting that income and you can create a hysteria using the controlled uh, media in Western Europe. You can create this hysteria where you blame the Russians for not providing the gas, whereas in reality, the Ukrainians did it, so to speak. They've stolen the gas. The, the, the way you could see this coming was after Saakashvili attacked Russia in the first days of August, he then had this meeting in uh, Tiflis in Georgia, and he got the prime ministers or presidents of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, right, the three Baltic states, plus Poland, plus Ukraine. And the, this is basically the old French cordon sanitaire from the 1920s. But these are all now uh, puppet states uh, of the U.S. and, and company. And uh, these people are crazed uh, ideologues and demagogues, and, and they're willing to do all sorts of crazy things. And um, the idea is that's that's an echelon that you can throw against the Russians and cause you know tremendous problems. Right? The the at, at the middle of a, of it, of course, is the Polish missile crisis. This was this was an issue. Uh, Obama met with Kaczynski, the current president of Poland. He's the surviving Kaczynski twin. Remember, this was the situation in Poland where they had two twins, one was the president and one was the prime minister, and you couldn't tell which was which. The prime minister fell now, but the president is still there. So that's Kaczynski. And Kaczynski said, I talked to Obama, and he told me that the installation of these missiles, allegedly anti-ballistic missiles in Poland, will go on on schedule. And that means there's going to be a Polish missile crisis fairly soon. You mean that Obama told him it was... That's what he said, yes. You have to follow this stuff, right? This, no, nobody, nobody in the U.S. media wants to tell you these things. It's a huge issue because the Russians say, look, this is directed against us. You're putting missiles in Poland. You're claiming that these are anti-ballistic missiles, but how do we know what they are? Those could be ICBMs, IRBMs, right? They can be... All kinds of missiles can be put in, right, once you're putting in missiles. Plus, the idea is this is part of a first strike strategy. In other words, it means that if, if the U.S. wants to pull a sneak attack, a nuclear sneak attack against Russia, that the Russian second strike might be weak and disorganized, and, uh, and those anti-ballistic missiles might be able to, to block some of the Russian retaliatory strikes. So it's basically part of a strategy going towards a nuclear exchange in, in Europe. And it's, it's pure insanity. This should not be done. And the, po the Polish president said he talked to Obama, and Obama assured him that this project would go on. Now, I would call on Obama. If you think he's a peace angel, uh, and I know a lot of left liberals still have tremendous problems understanding this, the one thing that Obama could do 
is to say there will be no Polish missiles, there will be no Polish missile crisis. We don't need to inflame the arms race in the center of Europe, because you'll remember the Russian president then said, fine, if you put missiles into Poland, I will put my own short-range missiles into the Kaliningrad area. In other words, the, this exclave that the Russians have. You know what I mean? It's, it's a piece of, uh, it used to be Germany, uh, and this is what they got at the end of World War II. And then when Belarus and Ukraine and the Baltics dropped away, the Russian Federation kept this. So they basically they have a port on the Baltic. It's Königsberg, right, the old German city. So the Russians say, we can put short-range missiles there that will counter your missiles that you're putting into Poland and also the radar that you're putting into the Czech Republic. So if Obama is the peace angel, let him come forward and say, there will be no Polish missile crisis. I would also add, the one person in the world who could guaranteed stop the killing in Gaza is Obama. He should say to the Israelis, stop it. Just that much. Stop it. The Israeli government would probably collapse at that point, and, uh, and, and the killing could end. Right? And, and he is the one person who could do that. And, of course, he has done absolutely nothing uh, in that regard. So for a lot of people, it's going to take a while to open their eyes. But the, these are the realities. This is a, this is a war administration um, in, in a more subtle way than Bush, but in a much more dangerous way. I guess that's, that's also important. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's War Administration. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Maybe we should begin with the question of who owns the cabinet, and I guess first up logically would be Vice President Joe Biden. Who does Biden represent? Well, let me just say again, the, the premise of all this, it is the most concentrated uh, expression of Wall Street financier banker interest that I've ever seen. Uh, people have got to, uh, I think, refurbish their terminology. Uh, it will not do to say corporate anymore. It's got to be financier, banker. It's not the controlled corporate media. That's, that's really not accurate. Financier-controlled media, the Wall Street media. Uh, you could see this, right? Uh, remember that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley gave far more to Obama than they ever did to McCain. It was, it was something that was unusual enough to attract comment. George Soros, at a certain point, anointed uh, Obama, right? David Rockefeller is in his corner. Jay Rockefeller, in other words, John D. Rockefeller, the, the fourth or fifth or whatever he is, the senator from, uh, from West Virginia, they're all supporting Obama. The Kennedy clan, right, decrepit and, and, uh, and uh, decadent as they are, they came out for Obama. So Obama is the candidate of the entire oligarchy, uh, liberal Republicans, even even some neocons, right? Again, because they want to attach themselves. So the, the the Obama project is to say, well, we can't have our oligarchy split uh, the way it has been under Bush. Uh, we've got to have a sort of pan oligarchy. We've got to unite the oligarchy against against the people in order to have the Anglo-American banking system and the dollar and the rest of this uh, system of, of world domination survive. So um, I'll just give one example. When, when Obama brought together his economic team 
back in uh, early November, you'd look at, you looked at this meeting, and he was sitting there next to Paul Adolf Volcker, who had been the, the Federal Reserve chief under Carter. This is the guy who brought you a 22 to 23 percent prime rate. As Helmut Schmidt, the Chancellor of Germany, said, the highest interest rates since Jesus Christ under Volcker. He destroyed heavy industry, steel, rubber, chemicals in the United States. In other words, the, the deindustrialization of the United States was done by Paul Adolf Volcker, Trilateral Commission, head of the Federal Reserve, appointed by Carter in 1979. And he's now sitting there as the elder statesman with Obama. Again, nobody had ever taken the prime rate to 22%, and that was, that was Volcker, and that was absolutely unprecedented, and everybody in the world was screaming. And why did he do that? To deindustrialize the United States. The Carter administration worked off a script, and it was called the 1980s Project, a multi-volume research project of the Council on Foreign Relations, which included uh, an essay on the monetary system by a guy called Fred Hirsch, now deceased. And Fred Hirsch said the controlled, the controlled disintegration of the world economic system is a reasonable goal of policy. And what he means by that is, if we essentially pitch the world into depression, then we will, uh, we will abort everybody else's development and we will somehow come out on top. That was more or less the idea. Now, you're, you're also, you're forcing me now to try to make sense out of policies which are insane. But the fact is, they did do these things and they knew what they were doing. And, they, and a large part of what they did was, was deliberate. Remember also that we have a polycentric oligarchical system where there is no single center and uh, nothing is ever, you know, absolutely programmed in, because there's always some oligarchical faction that doesn't agree, if only on the basis of personal animosity, right, that they hate each other, and they fight each other over, you know, all kinds of petty things. And then you looked at the rest of this group, and you'd say, well, you know, economics can mean what? Heavy industry, right, the National Association of Manufacturers, nobody. Uh, labor, how about some, you know, trade unionists, how about the UAW or the Teamsters or the uh, AFL-CIO, Sweeney, uh, Gettelfinger, uh, Hoffa, uh, somebody, not a one. Uh, farmers, they're part of the economy. Agriculture, uh, no. Um, retirees, they have a stake in this, no. The only people who show up in, in Obama's economic team is not the Secretary of Labor, not the Secretary of Agriculture, none of that, only Treasury and bankers. In other words, Financiers, bankers, stock jobbers, speculators, hedge fund hyenas, <laughs> again, lampreys, raptors from Wall Street. That's what he thinks of when he thinks economics. In other words, it's, it's an exclusively paper, speculative casino economy that he has in mind. So uh, it's clear that there's no seat at the table for labor or, or any of these other groups that might you know, expect to have something to say about economics. You could even, maybe a university president, right? They're often big employers, right? State of Maryland, Johns Hopkins is the biggest employer, right? Then maybe some representation of that. No, not even, not even the universities and the education establishment, right? The healthcare industry, nothing. It's only Wall Street. So I think this is, this is really, really chilling. Now, if we look at, uh, look at Biden, uh, remember that Biden, of course, uh, is an extreme warmonger. Right? This is one of the main supporters of the Iraq War. He's one of the people who helped to railroad the hearings 
in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in favor of attacking uh, Iraq. Um, and his gambit, as I said, in the in the 2007-2008 campaign was, let's attack Sudan, because, uh, he said, for humanitarian reasons. So humanitarian bombing of Sudan, humanitarian invasion of Sudan, because of the of the Darfur crisis. Now, you look at him, he's from Delaware. What do we know about Delaware? Well, Delaware exists mainly as a post box for Fortune 500 companies. The whole legislation of the state, the whole legal system is based on the fact that that's the place to locate your corporation. And, and Biden does not disappoint us in this regard. He is notoriously closely linked to MBNA credit card company, which are people who you know, uh, practice exorbitant usurious rates on credit cards. That's his, I guess, his home. That's where he gets his, you know, his baseline financing. The thing that he did for them then and for others was you have this awful bankruptcy bill of uh, bankruptcy reform, as they called it, of 2005, which made it much, much harder for an individual to declare bankruptcy and get rid of accumulated credit card debt. It's very, very hard to get out from under this crushing debt burden. So just as the entire system is going into a, uh, a debt crisis where people are, are facing uh, foreclosure and, and normally would personal bankruptcy would be a, a useful way to get out of some of this, Biden is helpfully there for MBNA, credit card, interest rate gouging company with, with the bankruptcy bill. So uh, he's very, very sinister. And he's got a son, Bo Biden, and you can see that he, he thinks like an oligarchical nepotist. He says, well, I have to give up my seat in the, in the, in the uh, U.S. Senate from Delaware, which he's held since 1972 in the line of hope and change. Right? He's been there for 37 years in the Senate. Uh, he wants to give this up, but he wants to have a non-entity come in as sort of a family retainer come in and, and keep the seat warm for two, two years, and then his nepotistic son, Bo Biden, can come in and assume the seat. So this, this, is, uh, this is Biden. So he's, uh, he's somebody whose belief in imperialism has never wavered. I mean, he believes axiomatically that U.S.-British imperialism ought to rule the world. And, of course, he, when, when we had Georgia attacking... Russia in the summer. He was over there in a flash promising Saakashvili one billion U.S. dollars to rebuild his little toy army and get ready for the next provocations against Russia. So I think a, a, a billion dollars would go far. You know, if you have the WIC program, like the women, infants, children, protein meals for, for people who need them, a billion dollars would, you know, that would go very, very far, or making Head Start available to everybody who wants it so your kid can get breakfast and daycare. But no, that's not, that's not Joe Biden's list of priorities. He wants that to go to this madman, Saakashvili, who had just gotten finished attacking Russia. What is the likelihood that his son, Bo Biden, could get his Senate seat? I don't know. That, you know, you have to look into Delaware. But I, I think unless people wake up, you're, you're finding that that these Senate seats are becoming um, hereditary. I think this goes together really with, a, I think, a, a, a moral and intellectual and epistemological crisis of the entire ruling class. And I have to stress this. There is a ruling class, a ruling elite, 
you can go back to Plato's Republic, where he talks about the essence of oligarchy. I mean, what, is, what does oligarchy mean? It means that the ruler is not really an individual. It's not a dictator or an individual tyrant, but it's a ruling class. The oligarchy rules based usually on, on money, property requirements, and the, the poor are simply excluded. And if you look at uh, you know, the attempt of Caroline Kennedy to enter the U.S. Senate, if you look at the Biden family treating that, that uh, seat as, as hereditary property, this looks like the House of Lords. This looks like the British House of Lords where these seats are held as fiefdoms. And you look at the U.S. Senate and you see names like Dodd and Bai and so forth, and you say, wait a minute, aren't these the same names that were there 30 or 40 years ago? And of course they're there because their parents were there. I mean, look no further than George Bush or, you know, Ted Kennedy. I mean, they're all there because some brother or father or some other relative put them there. And this is a this is a very, very ominous sign for the health of a ruling class. I would say certainly the Anglo American ruling elite is decadent, degenerate and uh, and essentially dysfunctional in any any conceivable way. And people have got to think about this. It's not it's not popular to talk about class analysis in this country, but if if you don't understand that the average person is fundamentally different from a financier, you're just a fool. You don't understand anything. And, uh, and maybe the depression will, you know, the, the torments that we're going to go into will wake people up. But I think that's absolutely fundamental that, uh, you know, there's got to be a, a, a turnover, let's say, a, a, a profound uh, reshuffling of the political deck in terms of these people. You cannot have the U.S. Senate become a, a hereditary House of Lords, uh, especially when it's families of this you know, absolutely wretched, miserable intellectual quality and moral quality, too, as we see. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's War Administration. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, let's go on to the cabinet then, and I think that we should start, well, let's start with war and peace. We've got uh, Robert Gates, we've got, uh, at the Pentagon, obviously, Susan Rice. Now, she's up to be what, ambassador to the U.N.? U.N. ambassador with cabinet rank restored, right? The Bush Bushies took away cabinet rank. It, it usually has had cabinet rank. Uh, Robert Gates, uh, along with Volcker, I guess, is is one of the most shocking examples of the, the continuity of this ruling elite, despite the um, the slogans of hope and change. Now, Robert Gates, uh, a very interesting person. He, he has learned that the aw shucks manner of rural America can be very disarming and can allow you to dupe people uh, for quite a long time, and he's really mastered this. It's sort of a the, the the public persona is that of some kind of a hayseed, but in reality, this is a very very devious uh, character. During the Carter administration, Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, co-founder with David Rockefeller with the Trilateral Commission, who picked Carter for the presidency and picked a lot of the other people in the Carter administration, and says so in in various books that he's written. Zbigniew Brzezinski was the head of the National Security Council. His right-hand man, his personal secretary, more or less, was Robert Gates. 
Brzezinski has written, the first guy I saw in the morning was Gates. The last guy I saw every day in the evening was Gates. So what did they do? Big project was to overthrow the Shah of Iran and to install Khomeini. Not just to overthrow the Shah, maybe there would be reasons for this, but to bring in Ayatollah Khomeini as a kind of Islamic version of Pol Pot, the kind of uh, government that would deindustrialize and destroy their own country. Because you'll remember, uh, in the late 70s, uh, Iran was on its way to have a steel industry, uh, a new mass transit system, a nationwide rail system, nuclear reactors, chemical industry, uh, modern electricity grid. It would have become the, the best example of a country getting out of the third world and into the developed world within a generation. And when Khomeini came in, about 50 to $60 billion, and those were real, well, more realistic dollars than they are now, uh, were simply shut down. And they took the cooling towers of nuclear reactors that were almost built were turned into grain silos. The Bushir reactor that the Iranians would like to complete today was started back in, in the 1970s. Right? And they had you know, all kinds of uh, tremendous programs going on. So the idea was bring in Khomeini because he will essentially abort the development of the country, which is then what he did. And they're still trying to dig themselves out, dig themselves out of that, that hole. So the first thing that Gates is a part of is the toppling of the Shah, bringing in Khomeini. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. You're saying that the U.S. put Khomeini in there. Absolutely, and Brzezinski Brzezinski boasted. He said, Islamic fundamentalism is the number one bulwark against Soviet communism. And his thesis was, if we can just have one big country go into the ranks of the Islamic fundamentalists, then that will infect the five Central Asian republics, right? Kyrgyzia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, the five where there's a large, large Muslim, Turkic, and uh, also Persian uh, population, right? the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union. And he boasted about this. Uh, you can see this in my book, uh, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in USA. He gave an interview to Nouvelle Observateur of Paris in 1998, where he boasted. He said, yes, I'm, you know, basically, I'm the father of modern Islamic fundamentalism. And uh, in, in this case, uh, Afghanistan, he said it was, you know, it's worth it to create to create, uh, you know, the the mujahideen fighters that then turned into terrorists. So that that's that's you know incidental. Well, what was... we were doing is bringing down the Soviet Union. You got to remember, he's a petty Polish aristocrat, and the ruling passion of his life is a consuming fanatical hatred of Russia. And if you haven't dealt with these people, you may may not realize how uh, fanatical this hatred is. Well, I was aware of that interview and, of course, his comments about Islamic fundamentalism in Afghanistan. Has he ever actually commented on Iran? Well, here's the comment we've had. Uh, Robert Gates uh, addressing the National Defense University, and this is, I think, a, a signal in the past couple of months. Robert Gates goes to the National Defense University here. And he's got uh, Jessica Matthews, right, from the Carnegie Endowment in the audience. And he says, Jessica, do you remember when we uh, worked for Brzezinski back under Carter? And we went to Algiers, and it was November of 1979, and we met with the Iranians, meaning Yazdi, the Khomeiniaks, right, the, the, the prime minister, defense minister, and, uh, and foreign minister of the Khomeiniak regime in Iran, says Gates. And we told them, Zbigniew Brzezinski laid it all out. He said to them, Dear Iranians, we understand your revolution. 
we will continue to deliver military hardware to you. We will give you everything that the Shah had ordered. We're going to deliver it all because we have a common enemy. It's the Soviet Union to your north. So we want to make sure that you get built up, make you strong against the Soviets. Now, at this point, Yazdi says, we want the Shah delivered. And Brzezinski says, we can't do that. And that's the end of the official story. Now, let me add what I have in my uh, book, Obama, the Postmodern Coup. What they then decided to do is to say, well, if we can't agree about this, why don't you take some hostages and we will then have a pretext inside the U.S. bureaucracy to keep these uh, deliveries going, right? In other words, the arms for hostages, in order to have arms for hostages, in order to have Iran-Contra gun running, you've got to have hostages. So they basically said, well, uh, take some hostages here. And that's what happened within about a week after this meeting of Brzezinski with the Iranians in Algiers. So I think it's all pretty well confirmed. And it's, it's interesting that Gates comes back and tells this story right now, because what he's really saying is this is the new policy. It's that Iran and the United States have a common enemy to the north, and it's the Soviets. Remember that in Iran, and you can ask Iranians, and I urge you to do it, uh, ask them, what is the foreign country that is most hated? You think it's either the U.S. or the British? No, it's the Soviets. It's Russia. And this is what Brzezinski wants to build on. Wherever you have a Russophobic population, Brzezinski is there in a flash with uh, offers of assistance. Now, one other point of clarification. Now, when the Shah fell, there were all those riots against the Shah. Was the Shah going to come down anyway, or was that uh, concocted? The Shah was, basically, the, the objection they had to the Shah was that he was carrying out the economic development of Iran on a grand scale with steel, nuclear energy, chemicals, education, transportation, infrastructure, airports, electrical grids. And this they don't want. The imperialists don't like that because that creates a competitor. Uh, he was also, he was dealing with the Soviets, dealing with the Italians, dealing with uh, all sorts of people. And they don't like that either. They want you to be on their leash. So uh, the problem, of course, the Shah had was politically he was a monster, and he would not allow, you know, he had this awful Savak, this uh, terrorist uh, political police and so forth. He was widely hated and deserved to be. He was a monstrous figure in many ways. But on the economic side, this much, much good was, was started uh, under the Shah. So the, the obvious thing would have been to say, well, get rid of the Shah and bring in somebody like Bakhtiar, in other words, a a normal sort of middle-class politician, right? Not an emperor, but not a theocracy either, not a military coup, but a, you know, a normal civilian. Uh, basically go back to uh, what they had in the Mossadegh. But Brzezinski made sure that didn't happen. They even sent a general. They sent General Heuser from the staff of uh, Al Haig in Brussels, the NATO command, to tell the Iranian generals, no military coup, we want Khomeini. Khomeini, Khomeini, Khomeini. Because that was the whole goal of the policy, was to put Islamic fundamentalism into power and use that to scare the Soviets and undermine the Soviets. And that part uh, more or less worked. Oh, God. Uh, what else can you tell me about Robert Gates? Let's just tick off the Gates. So he's part of the overthrow of the Shah and the installation of Khomeini. He's the, along with, uh, with Brzezinski, if Brzezinski is the father of modern Islamic fundamentalism, I guess Gates is the midwife um, remember, Gates is so dirty.
that when he tried to become the head of the CIA under Bush the Elder in the early 90s, he couldn't make it through the Senate. He was held in abeyance for years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he, he, he... he was filthy. And, and right now he won't have, to, have, uh, he won't have to, to be confirmed. Now he's an elder statesman. So here's what he's part of. The overthrow of the Shah bringing in Khomeini, the operation of taking the hostages, then the October surprise where the possible liberation of the hostages is deliberately delayed in order to make sure that it doesn't help Carter to stay in power, which it might have done. Then we've got Iran-Contra, in other words, the continuous delivery of high-quality military goods to Iran uh, as part of this, which is really part of this Iraq-Iran war, because the U.S. is arming both sides and trying to keep that going as long as possible to do what? To destroy both. And it, it did largely destroy both. Uh, and then Robert Gates is the father of al-Qaeda. He's the guy who creates the Arab Legion of the CIA to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan with Islamic fundamentalism and bin Laden, and that's al-Qaeda, and he created it. So he's quite a guy, isn't he? Then there's General James L. Jones, National Security Advisor. Uh, Gates is not alone. He's got the head of the National Security Council, General James Jones. Uh, this is a former NATO commander, and of course his specialty is anti-Russian operations. Right? These are these are all people you know made to order for Brzezinski. Also remember, Gates, in terms of his specialty, is uh, a, an, a Sovietologist, and he's an anti-Russian ideologue in the same way that Condoleezza Rice is an anti-Russian Sovietologist uh, ideologue. So James Jones brings in the experience of having been the NATO commander in a phase of NATO expansion, right, pushing NATO up to the uh, you know, borders of Russia, into Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, trying to get Georgia in, trying to get Ukraine in. That's been blocked by the Europeans. And then we get Susan Rice. We have the new Dr. Rice, the new Miss, Miss Rice, I guess, of the, uh, of the Obama administration. She's the U.N. ambassador. She has cabinet rank. And her story is this campaign to bomb Sudan. The, the humanitarian intervention in Sudan uh, is her, uh, her, her purpose in life. So if you're, I think if you're in Sudan today, you're preparing to repel an attack, which will be done not under terrorist uh, war on terror auspices, but for humanitarian uh, reasons. And uh, she's been very much a part of that. And, of course, her own record in this regard, they always say, as Samantha Power does, that they're doing this to fight genocide. Well, uh, Susan Rice, back during the Rwanda genocide, that, that happened on her watch, I believe. So she would have to report, what did you do to try to stop the, uh, the Tutsis from starting this rampage in, in, uh, in the lakes region, Uganda and so forth, and Rwanda-Burundi of, uh, of Africa. So I think this is, this is a very, very grim... Uh, combination. And then we have Mullen as the head yeah, of the Joint Chiefs. The, the current Admiral Mullen, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and again, just like Gates, he stays on. And, and the, for, for a, a demagogic campaign based on hope and change, the degree of sameness, in other words, the same hacks and wheel horses. I mean, with Gates, it's, it's Gates and Volcker essentially end the argument, but uh, Mullen has been there, yes. Mullen has been a part of everything that's been done, and, and he's going to stay. With Gates, I, I don't think there's, there's any recent example of a top cabinet official, in other words, state, treasury, uh, um, defense, or attorney general, 
who has gone from one administration to another when they're different parties. I think that's really extraordinary. And Mullen is staying on with him. And of course, Obama has no timetable to leave Iraq. There's no such thing. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and uh, Happy New Year. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Obama's War Administration. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Webster Tarpley hosts a weekly two-hour Internet public affairs radio show, World Crisis Radio, every Saturday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Genesis Communication Network at www.gcnlive.com. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. You dig me? You got me?